Section 3 of A Compendious History of English Literature and of the English Language, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Grant Hicks. A Compendious History of English Literature and of the English Language, Volume 1. By George L. Craik. Chapter 1, Part 3. The Celtic Languages and Literatures. No other branch of what is called the Indo-European family of languages is of higher interest in certain points of view than the Celtic. The various known forms of Celtic are now regarded as coming under two great divisions, the Gaelic and the Cymric, Ireland being the head seat of the Gaelic, which may therefore also be called Irish, Wales being the head seat of the Cymric, which accordingly is by the English commonly called Welsh. Subordinate varieties of the Irish are the Gaelic of Scotland, often called Erse, or Ursh, that is, Irish, and the Manx, or Isle of Man tongue, now fast dying out. Other Cymric dialects are the Cornish, now extinct as a spoken language, and the Armorican, or that still spoken in some parts of Britannia. The probability is that the various races inhabiting the British islands when they first became known to the civilized world were mostly, if not all, of Celtic speech. Even in the parts of the country that were occupied by the Caledonians, the Picts, and the Belgian colonists, the oldest topographical names, the surest evidence that we have in all cases, and in this case almost our only evidence, are all, so far as can be ascertained, Celtic, either of the Cymric or of the Gaelic form. And then there are the great standing facts of the existence to this day of a large Cymric population in South Britain, and of a still larger Gaelic-speaking population in North Britain and in Ireland. No other account of these Celtic populations, or at least of the Welsh, has been attempted to be given than that, as their own traditions and records are unanimous in asserting, they are the remnants of the races by which the two islands were occupied when they first attracted the attention of the Romans about half a century before the commencement of the Christian era. And both the Welsh and the Irish possess a large mass of literature in their native tongues much of which has been printed, in great part no doubt of comparatively modern production, but claiming some of it, in its substance if not exactly in the very form in which it now presents itself, an antiquity transcending any other native literature of which the country can boast. Neither the Welsh nor the Irish language and literature, however, can with any propriety be included in a history of English literature and of the English language. The relationship of English to any Celtic tongue is more remote than its relationship not only to German or Icelandic, or French or Italian or Latin, but even to Russian or Polish, or to Persian or Sanskrit. Irish and Welsh are opposed in their entire genius and structure to English. It has indeed been sometimes asserted that the Welsh is one of the fountains of the English. One school of last-century philologists maintained that full a third of our existing English was Welsh. No doubt, in the course of the fourteen centuries that the two languages have been spoken alongside of each other in the same country, a considerable number of vocables can hardly fail to have been borrowed by each from the other. The same thing would have happened if it had been a dialect of Chinese that had maintained itself all that time among the Welsh mountains. If, too, as is probable, a portion of the previous Celtic population chose or were suffered to remain even upon that part of the soil which came to be generally occupied after the departure of the Romans, by the Angles, Saxons, and other Teutonic or Gothic tribes, the importers of the English language and founders of the English nation, something of Celtic may in that way have intermingled, 
and grown up with the new national speech. But the English language cannot therefore be regarded as of Celtic parentage. The Celtic words, or words of Celtic extraction, that are found in it, be they some hundreds in number, or be they one or two thousands, are still only something foreign. They are products of another seed that have shot up here and there with the proper crop from the imperfectly cleared soil, or they are fragments of another mass which have chanced to come in contact with the body of the language, pressed upon by its weight, or blown upon it by the wind, and so have adhered to it or become embedded in it. It would perhaps be going farther than known facts warrant us if we were to say that a Gothic tongue and a Celtic tongue are incapable of a true amalgamation. But undoubtedly it would require no common pressure to overcome so strong an opposition of nature and genius. The Gothic tongues, and the Latin or Romance tongues also, indeed, belong to distinct branches of what is called the Indo-European family. But the Celtic branch, though admitted to be of the same tree, has much more of a character of its own than any of the others. Probably any other two languages of the entire multitude held to be of this general stock would unite more readily than two of which only one was Celtic. It would be nearly the same case with that of the intermixture of an Indo-European with a Semitic language. It has been suggested that the Celtic branch must, in all probability, have diverged from the common stem at a much earlier date than any of the others. At any rate, in point of fact, the English can at most be said to have been powdered or sprinkled with a little Celtic. Whatever may be the number of words which it has adopted, whether from the ancient Britons or from their descendants the Welsh, they are only single scattered words. No considerable department of the English dictionary is Welsh. No stream of words has flowed into the language from that source. The two languages have in no sense met and become one. They have not mingled as two rivers do when they join and fall into the same channel. There has been no chemical combination between the Gothic and the Celtic elements, but only more or less of a mechanical intermixture. We shall limit ourselves to the briefest notice of the remains of the ancient vernacular literature of Ireland and of Wales. The earliest literature of which any remains still exist in any of the native languages of the British islands must be held to be the Irish. The Irish were probably possessed of the knowledge of letters from a very remote antiquity. Although the forms of their present alphabetical characters are Roman, and are supposed to have been introduced by St. Patrick in the 5th century, it is very remarkable that the alphabet, in the number and powers of its elements, exactly corresponds with that which Cadmus is recorded to have brought to Greece from Phoenicia. If we may believe the national traditions, and the most ancient existing chronicles, the Irish also possessed a succession of bards from their first settlement in the country, and the names of some of those that are said to have flourished so early as in the first century of our era are still remembered, but the oldest bardic compositions that have been preserved claim to be of the fifth century. Some fragments of metrical productions to which this date is attributed are found in the old analysts, and more abundant specimens occur in the same records under each of the succeeding centuries. The oldest existing Irish manuscript, however, is believed to be the Psalter of Cashel, a collection of bardic legends compiled about the end of the ninth century by Cormac Maculinan, Bishop of Cashel and King of Munster. But the most valuable remains of ancient Irish literature that have come down to us are the various historical records in prose, called the Annals of Tirnach, of the Four Masters, of Ulster, and others. Portions of these were first published in the original, accompanied with Latin translations, in Dr. O'Connor's Rerum Hibernicarum Scriptores Veteres, four volumes, quarto, Buckingham, 1814-1826, to a splendid monument of the munificence of his grace the late Duke of Buckingham, 
at whose expense the work was prepared and printed, and from the treasures of whose library its contents were principally derived. Tiernach, the oldest of these Irish annalists, lived in the latter part of the 11th century, but both his and the other annals profess and are believed to have been compiled from authentic records of much greater antiquity. They form undoubtedly a collection of materials in the highest degree precious for the information they supply with regard to the history both of Ireland and of the various early British kingdoms. These annals differ wholly in character from the metrical legends of Irish history found in the Book of Cashel and in the other later compositions of the Bards. They consist of accounts of events related for the most part with both sobriety and precision, and with the careful notation of dates that might be expected from a contemporary and official recorder. They are in all probability, indeed, copies of, or compilations from, public records. A much more satisfactory edition in all respects of the annals of the Four Masters, which were compiled in the 17th century, and of which only the portion ending in the year 1171 is in Dr. O'Connor's work, has since been produced under the auspices of the Irish Archaeological Society by Dr. O'Donovan, Professor of the Celtic Languages in Queen's College, Belfast. This edition, which was originally brought out in five volumes, quarto, in 1848-51, and reprinted in seven volumes, quarto, in 1856, contains the annals from their commencement at the creation down to their termination in A.D. 1616. And besides, a translation of the whole in English presents a mass of learned annotation, making it almost a cyclopedia both of Irish history and of Irish topography. To the Archaeological Society, founded in 1840, and now united with the Celtic Society, we owe also many other important publications. And on one that will be perhaps the most important of all that have yet appeared in illustration of the ancient civilization of the country, and to a considerable extent, too, of the earlier forms of the language, that of the remains of what are called the Brehon Laws, Dr. O'Donovan is understood to have been for some years engaged. Not of such historic importance, but perhaps still more curious and interesting in other points of view, are the remains we still possess of the early Welsh literature. The Welsh have no national annals to be compared in value with those of the Irish, but some of their chronicles, fabulous as they evidently are in great part, are undoubtedly of considerable antiquity. It is now almost universally admitted that the famous Latin Chronicle of the Britons, published by Geoffrey of Monmouth in the twelfth century, is really what it professes to be, at least in the main, a translation from a much older Welsh original. The laws of Huilva, who reigned in South Wales in the early part of the 10th century, have been printed with a Latin translation by Watton in his Leges Valicae, folio 1730, and again in the late Record Commission edition of the Ancient Laws and Institutes of Wales by an Iron Owen, Esquire, folio 1841. They develop a state of society in which many primitive features are strangely mixed up with a general aspect of considerable civilization and all the order of a well-established political system. Then there are the singular compositions called the triads, which are enumerations of events or other particulars, bound together in knots of three, by means of some title or general observation, sometimes it must be confessed forced and far-fetched enough, under which it is conceived that they may all be included. Of the triads, some are moral, and others historical. The historical are certainly not all ancient, for they contain allusions to events that took place in the reign of our Edward I. But it appears most probable that the form of composition which they exemplify was long in use, and if so, the comparatively modern character of some of them does not disprove the antiquity of others. A late writer, 
who considers them to be a compilation of the 13th century, admits that they reflect, in a small and moderately faithful mirror, various passages of bardic composition which are lost. Then there is the collection of romantic prose tales known as the Mabinogion, preserved in a manuscript of the 14th century, which has now been published, with an English translation and notes, by Lady Charlotte Guest in three sumptuous volumes, Octavo, London, 1838-1850, one of the most remarkable feats of the female authorship of our day. The most voluminous of the ancient Welsh remains, however, are the poems of the bards. The authenticity of these compositions had till recently been regarded as having been established, beyond dispute, by various investigators, and especially by Mr. Sharon Turner's elaborate vindication. But now again the judgment of the most advanced Celtic scholarship seems to be tending the other way. The poems professing to be the most ancient are those ascribed to the four bards Aniron, Taliesin, Fluarchen, and Merthyn, or Merlin the Caledonian, who all appear to have belonged to the 6th century. A few additional pieces have also been preserved of the 7th, 8th, 9th, 10th, and 11th centuries, which are printed along with these in the first volume of the Miverian Archaeology of Wales, three volumes, octavo, London, 1801. Much of this early Welsh poetry is in a strangely mystical style, its general spirit being, according to one theory, much more druidical than Christian. The author of Britannia After the Romans has endeavored to show that a partial revival of Druidism was effected in Wales in the 6th century, principally through the efforts of the bards, whose order had formerly composed so distinguished a part of the Druidical system, and much in the character of this ancient poetry would seem to favor that supposition, which does not, however, rest upon this evidence alone. No existing manuscript of these poems, we may observe, nor any other Welsh manuscript, appears to be much older than the 12th century. As the forms of the original English alphabetical characters are the same with those of the Irish, it is probable that it was from Ireland the English derived their first knowledge of letters. There was certainly, however, very little literature in the country before the arrival of Augustine in the end of the 6th century. Augustine is supposed to have established schools at Canterbury, and about a quarter of a century afterwards, Sigebert, king of the East Angles, who had spent part of his early life in France, is stated by Bede to have, upon his coming to the throne, founded an institution for the instruction of the youth of his dominions similar to those he had seen abroad. The schools planted by Augustine at Canterbury were afterwards greatly extended and improved by his successor, Archbishop Theodore, who obtained the see in 668. Theodore and his learned friend Adrian, Bede informs us, delivered instructions to crowds of pupils not only in divinity, but also in astronomy, medicine, arithmetic, and the Greek and Latin languages. Bede states that some of the scholars of these accomplished foreigners were alive in his time, to whom the Greek and Latin were as familiar as their mother tongue. Schools now began to multiply in other parts, and were generally to be found in all the monasteries and at the bishop's seats. Of these episcopal and monastic schools, that founded by Bishop Benedict in his abbey at Wearmouth, where Bede was educated, and that which Archbishop Egbert established at York, were among the most famous but others of great reputation at a somewhat later date were superintended by learned teachers from Ireland. One was that of Mildulf at Malmesbury. At Glastonbury, also, it is related in one of the ancient lives of St. Dunstan, some Irish ecclesiastics had settled, the books belonging to whom Dunstan is recorded to have diligently studied. The northern parts of the kingdom, moreover, were indebted for the first light of learning as well as of religion to the missionaries from Iona, which was an Irish foundation. 
For some ages Ireland was the chief seat of learning in Christian Europe, and the most distinguished scholars who appeared in other countries were mostly either Irish by birth or had received their education in Irish schools. We are informed by Bede that in his day, the earlier part of the 8th century, it was customary for his English fellow countrymen of all ranks, from the highest to the lowest, to retire for study and devotion to Ireland, where, he adds, they were all hospitably received, and supplied gratuitously with food, with books, and with instruction. The glory of this age of Irish scholarship and genius is the celebrated Ioannis Scotus, or Origina, as he is as frequently designated, either appellative equally proclaiming his true birthplace. He is supposed to have first made his appearance in France about the year 845, and to have remained in that country till his death, which appears to have taken place before 875. Origina is the author of a translation from the Greek of certain mystical works ascribed to Dionysius the Areopagite, which he executed at the command of his patron, the French king Charles the Bald, and also of several original treatises on metaphysics and theology. His productions may be taken as furnishing clear and conclusive evidence that the Greek language was taught at this time in the Irish schools. Mr. Turner has given a short account of his principal work, his dialogue De Divisione Naturae, on the division of nature, which he characterizes as distinguished for its Aristotelian acuteness and extensive information. In one place, he takes occasion, it is observed, to give concise and able definitions of the seven liberal arts and to express his opinion on the composition of things. In another part, he inserts a very elaborate discussion on arithmetic, which he says he had learnt from his infancy. He also details a curious conversation on the elements of things, on the motions of the heavenly bodies, and other topics of astronomy and physiology. Among these he even gives the means of calculating the diameters of the lunar and solar circles. Besides the fathers Austin, the two Gregories, Chrysostom, Basil, Epiphanius, Origen, Jerome, and Ambrosius, of whose works, with the Platonizing Dionysius and Maximus, he gives large extracts, he also quotes Virgil, Cicero, Aristotle, Pliny, Plato, and Boethius. He details the opinions of Eratosthenes and of Pythagoras on some astronomical topics. He also cites Martianus Capella. His knowledge of Greek appears almost in every page. The subtle speculations of Origina have strongly attracted the notice of the most eminent among the modern inquirers into the history of opinion and of civilization and the German Tenemann agrees with the French Cousin and Guizot in attributing to them a very extraordinary influence on the philosophy of his own and of succeeding times. To his writings and translations, it is thought, may be traced the introduction into the theology and metaphysics of Europe of the later Platonism of the Alexandrian school. It is remarkable, as Mr. Moore has observed, that the learned Mosheim had previously shown the study of the scholastic or Aristotelian philosophy to have been also of Irish origin. That the Hibernians, says that writer, who were called Scots in this, the 8th century, were lovers of learning, and distinguished themselves in these times of ignorance by the culture of the sciences beyond all the other European nations, traveling through the most distant lands both with a view to improve and to communicate their knowledge, is a fact with which I have been long acquainted, as we see them in the most authentic records of antiquity discharging, with the highest reputation and applause, the function of doctor in France, Germany, and Italy, both during this and the following century. But that these Hibernians were the first teachers of the scholastic theology in Europe, and so early as the 8th century illustrated the doctrines of religion by the principles of philosophy, I learned but lately.
and then he adduces the proofs that establish his position. Among the earlier productions of Irish scholarship may especially be mentioned the two Latin lives of Columba, the founder of the monastery of Iona, and its abbot from 563 till his death in 597, the first by Cuminius, who succeeded as abbot of Iona in 657, the second, which is of much greater length, by Aravnan, who succeeded to the same office in 679. Both these productions, the second of which in particular is highly curious, have been repeatedly printed. End of section 3